This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to February. I find it difficult to even say that. This is the word to stand them for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, questions about stuff that's going on in your life, anything and everything. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. Um, the five Sundays, it, it seemed like January was never going to end, and then we were already at the end. Um, and I'm sure February will go that quickly as well. Well, let me get... Oh, by the way, we're having our men's and women's Bible studies here tonight at 7 o'clock. Ladies, um, uh, Lauren... Will be Lauren Blanton will be teaching the ladies. You can watch that live stream at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. Uh, also, of course, our junior high and high school ministries are going on at the same time, so you can make it a family um, production. Okay, let's get to right to questions while we await your phone calls. The first one comes from Juliet. Uh, she says, I am a believer. Can the devil influence my mind, especially in dreams? Um, Juliet, yeah, the devil can influence our minds, and um, I, I can tell you by personal experience that he is uh, a tormentor <laughs> in dreams, nightmares they are for me. But yeah, he can influence us. Now, he plants ideas. He cannot read your mind. You need to understand that he's not God. He can't read your mind. But but remember, Peter says he's always prowling around like a roaring lion looking for opportunities to devour um, God acknowledged that Satan was checking Job out. So he, he and his demons are checking you out. And they know you and they know what your propensities are and, and, and they know uh, what buttons to push. And so, yes, um, the, the, the enemy can and does influence our thoughts. He plants thoughts. That's why Paul tells us to take every thought captive and make them obedient to Christ. But yes, he can, and especially in the dreams. Now, Juliet, I am a nightmare sufferer. That's, that's the only way I can put it. Um, I feel sometimes like when it's time to go to bed, Paula will get in bed and she'll say, you know, sometimes it just feels better than other times. 
Well, for me, every night I get in bed. I don't have nightmares every night, but most of the nights I do. Uh, for me, when I get in bed, I feel like, oh no, another wrestling match. So it's just something you got to be prepared for. God still gives me rest and I'm still able to sleep. But man, I have the strangest dreams. Um, so yes, he can and he will. And what you need to do is keep uh, yourself in the word of God. Um, be talking to Jesus when I'm trying to get to sleep at night. I'm, I'm speaking to the Lord. I'm listening for the Lord. I actually put in uh, uh, Bible teaching. I've got an earplug uh, and I put in uh, Bible teaching and, and those kinds of things just to try to, to make sure I'm, I'm protected. And then, of course, every night before I go to bed, I ask the Lord to protect me, uh, our bodies physically, to protect our nightmares, our dreams, and, and hopefully that we can get some rest. So um, the fact that you're a believer, Juliet, is the reason that he's trying to plant wicked thoughts or evil thoughts and, and why he's trying to come to you in dreams. So please, please, please just know it, be prepared for it, and remember that God will not let anything happen um, that he knows you cannot overcome. may not feel like it sometimes, Juliet, but I promise you that's the case. Sometimes, Juliet, for me, going to bed at night is a step of faith, and that's really the, the way I've gotten used to looking at it. So I hope that answers your question and comforts you just a little bit. But he can always, always plant thoughts in your mind. We have biblical examples of that repeatedly, and uh, the same thing is true for us. Good question. Roy says, I always hear Christians say God never changes, but why doesn't he? Changing with the times is a good thing. Well, Roy, you have to remember that God doesn't change with the times because God is the times. And I know that doesn't sound like good English, but, but what I'm saying is God is always in the present. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. And that's why he told Moses when Moses said, well, the people can say who sent me, what is his name? And that's why uh, the Lord told him, tell him, I am sent me. Not I was or I will be, but I am. He always is in the present. The other thing, Roy, that you have to remember about God is that he's perfect. If he's always in the present and if he's perfect, if he can't be improved, um, if he never has to make any changes or modifications, um, why would we think that the times that are changing are a good thing? When God is always in the present. You know, Roy, when I talk about sins and this coming uh, Sunday's message, in fact, I'm going to be teaching, uh, speaking about homosexuality out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, and I'm taking a special teaching time to go back to just to talk about those two verses um, because this is a New Testament construct. And people will say, well, well, well God has to change with the times. Well, um, if if homosexuality was wrong 2,000 years ago, it's still wrong because God is the same then and now. And we've got to accept that. God, uh, people say, well, that's an old-fashioned idea. Well, the truth is God is very old, so that's okay. So a perfect God never has to change. Uh, a perfect God doesn't get up one day and say, you know what? We're so much more sophisticated now. I'm going to have a different view of this or a different view of this. There's seven passages of Scripture, Roy, in the New Testament, or in our, in our Bibles. Some in the Old Testament, some in the New. Seven passages of Scripture that deal with um, homosexuality. And in all cases, they're condemned and there's judgment. 
Um, there's, they're, they're consistently laid out. So the fact that we wake up in 2021 doesn't mean that God is suddenly out of vogue or that God is old-fashioned. We need to bring God up to the times. We don't need to do that. So um, God doesn't have to change what we have to decide, Roy. And when you say, I always hear Christians say, this would seem to indicate that you don't consider yourself a Christian. But think about this. You're listening to a Christian radio program. Maybe the Lord is knocking at the door of your heart. Maybe you're asking the right questions as well as some of these questions that are not quite as right. Maybe God's trying to reveal himself to you. So the decision you have to make isn't do I change with the times or do I change and become more like Jesus? And of course, that's what it means to be born again, Roy. Uh, we, We surrender our will to his will. We give him control of our lives and then we we have all the truth that we will ever need, the only truth, incidentally. And not only that, but we have an opportunity to be forgiven and have a whole new start in life. And all you got to do is to agree with God that you need one. So, Roy, I hope that answers your question. Jose said, should parents recognize faith in a small child or dismiss it because they're young? My five-year-old believes seems to understand, and is correctable when I use the word. Jose, God bless you for raising your children, especially as young as they are when they're so impressionable. Kids believe, Jesus said, unless you have the faith as a little child, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, um, Children believe. You know, the truth is they're born believing. Instinctively, we all know from the beginning of our consciousness, we know that we're missing something. There's just something that's not there. God is that thing, and so kids believe. I've never had a five-year-old want to argue theology with me. I've never had a five-year-old say, well, I don't understand if God is a God of love. Why is there so much pain in the world? I've never had a five-year-old. You tell a five-year-old that God loves them, that he sent his son Jesus to die for their sins so that they could live forever in heaven to be with Jesus. They believe it, and then tragically, uh, our culture unteaches them. They unlearn the things that they knew are instinctive. So what you're doing with your children and and your five-year-old in particular is really a good thing because you're giving him or her a foundation that God will use for the rest of their lives. Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. If you talk to Paula, she'll tell you, uh, she she says, that's my jam. Um, You know, when she wasn't raised in a Christian home either and um, that summer Bible school little song stuck with her and God used that to draw her to him. So if your five-year-old believes and if they seem to understand and if when they've done something wrong, you can open the word and and show them what's wrong and they respond to that, uh, I'd say this is a five-year-old whose faith is real. Now that doesn't mean there's there's not going to be a long road ahead. It doesn't mean that he or she won't have questions Um, further down the road. But what it means is that right now they believe and you can nurture that faith so never dismiss it, encourage it and sort of light a fire under it and nurture that faith and and you will be so blessed watching your child grow up. You know, Jose, I've told stories about a young man in my church who loves for me to ask him Bible questions. 
He just loves it. He wants me to quiz him. He knows the answers. Uh, he, he corrects his mom and his dad. If they do something that he believes is contrary to what the word says. Now, he's, yeah, I think he's six now, but, but, but I mean, this young man just gets it. It's clearly a gift that God has. He's got an unbelievable memory. And God is using that. And believe me, this, this young man is, um, he belongs to Jesus and he knows it completely. So if that describes your five-year-old, you're in really, really a good place and the Lord is proud of you. Jose, good going for, for what you're doing. Raise, train the child up in the way he should go and in the end he will not depart. Thank you, Jose, very, very much. Dwayne says, Pastor Ron, does divorce always prohibit a man from pastoral ministry? Dwayne, no, it doesn't. And in fact, if um, you were divorced or if a man is divorced before he gets saved, well, then, of course, all of those sins are gone. I think we we sometimes don't read the fine print. It's really simple. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Uh, had I been divorced before I got saved, then I wouldn't have been disqualified at all from being a pastor. Fortunately, I didn't, and and um, Paula prayed for me. But no, it doesn't prohibit a man from pastoral ministry. Additionally, Dwayne, if you were divorced as a believer and you were the victimized rather than the victimizer, then there's always grace for the victim. There's always grace for the victim. So no, it doesn't always. Sometimes it does. Uh, I've told all of my staff, Dwayne, that that if their marriage goes south, then everybody steps out of ministry and we work on the marriage. Um, They understand the importance of a solid marriage. They understand the importance of, of setting an example. You know, too often we Christians can talk about what's right to do, but we don't do it or we're not able to to practice it in our own lives. Um, That's the kind of duplicity that the Lord hates. So um, if there are marriage problems, uh, if you divorce uh, without biblical grounds, um, and you do it just because, well, I just need to be happy, God wants me to be be in ministry, um, then probably the answer to the question would be yes, and you're probably prohibited from pastoral ministry. Uh, you, you, God doesn't let us teach theory. I say that all the time. God never lets us teach theory. we got to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So, Dwayne, I hope that answers your question. Good question. Hey, we'd love your calls. We can start a brand new month with phone calls and good questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's an anonymous question. Is it a sin to be attracted to people of the same sex even if you do not act on it? No, it's not anonymous. Um, you know, every everybody, um, again, I'm going to refer to the study I'm going to be doing on Sunday, uh, this coming Sunday. There's a, there's a list of sins. And everybody's on a list. It just depends what list you're on or what part of that list applies to you. Uh, same-sex attraction is a fact of life. We live in a fallen world, and and things don't always work the way that they're supposed to work. So if you are attracted to people of the same sex, and you deny yourself and don't act on that attraction, 
then you're pleasing to the Lord. You know, if I feel like stealing something, my flesh wants to do it, but I don't do it, well, God's pleased that I resisted the temptation. You can apply that to any sin, whatever list you might be on. But same-sex attraction is something that is real. I think if you are attracted to, to, to people of the same gender, I think you've got to decide that you're going to live the rest of your life celibate. You're simply not going to let your flesh control you by the power of the Spirit. You're going to control your flesh. We have the power to do that. The power that raised Christ and the dead lives in us. And if you make this, the, the, the decision, okay, then that means I'm not going to have a, a, a love life. Uh, I, I'm not going to be able to be married and have a family, um, which is typically what people dream about doing when they're young. And if you say, okay, I'm going to do that, Lord, and I'm going to do that so I can commit all of my life to you, well, then you're just like the Apostle Paul who lived in celibacy after his family would have left him because of his conversion to Christ. So it's not a sin any more than than somebody who looks at a um, a, a big old piece of chocolate cake and they know they shouldn't eat it, when you're attracted to do it or tempted to do it, you have a choice. Am I going to do it or am I going to do what I know is best for me? Well, the same thing is true in attraction to people of the same sex. It's really important. Whenever we say no to that which tempts us, God is pleased and when we obey him, the power of the Holy Spirit is given to us. So is unfortunate, anonymous, that you're attracted to people of the same sex? But that can be turned into a powerful tool to use for the glory of God. You understand that God has given you choice. Are you going to satisfy the flesh? Or are you going to satisfy the spirit? So if you're attracted don't dwell on it. Take those thoughts captive. Make them obedient to Christ. And understand that you're going to live the rest of your life without what the world would call a normal marriage relationship. You're going to be alone in that sense. But you will never be alone because Jesus is with you. And every time you resist your flesh, imagine his smile. So Anonymous, hang in there. Hang in there. The Lord loves you and he's proud of you. Here is a question from Vince. I thought I was done with Trump questions. Vince says, a lot of pastors said Trump would stay in office. Does that make them false prophets? Um, Vince, the pastors, I think, that said Trump would stay in office, I think they were, most of them weren't speaking in from a thus saith the Lord um, forum. Uh, I think that they were speaking hopefully um, maybe they had strong opinions that he would win the election. Now, let me deal with false prophets for a moment because the internet was was awash with um, prophet this and prophet that or prophetess so-and-so. And, so. and uh, you can find them on YouTube. They, they, they're prophesying Trump will have four more years in office and, and Biden will never be the president. You get all of that. And yeah, that makes them false prophets by definition. The standard test for a prophet, the legitimacy of a prophet, is perfection. And it's interesting, Vince, to see these men and women now 
uh, tried to rationalize why they were wrong. You know, we had a guy that for many, many years was prophesying the return of Jesus, and and he was prophesying it on his his radio program uh, that had been going on, I think, since the 1940s or 50s. Um, and, 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 you know, people just kept listening to him, even after he was wrong, repeatedly. Well, the last time, and he has since died and gone to be with Jesus, I don't doubt that he was a real believer, but before he died, after prophesying the last time, and it was last year, uh, a date that Jesus was coming back, um, he publicly, on that same radio program, apologized for his errors and disavowed the notion that he was a prophet. So um, he was false prophet, but he repented. Um, the problem now is these false prophets are trying to make it seem like they were right or that there's some loophole in the 100% perfection clause. Um, yeah, so d depending on their motive, I, I wouldn't say that a pastor who who just thought that Trump would win is a false prophet, but the pastor or the self-proclaimed prophet who said that he would win, thus say the Lord, that is a false prophet. And sadly, Vince, we got a lot of false prophets around to this very, very day. Hope that makes sense to you. We're inside five minutes already for this half. I uh, would love your calls. You, you're more interesting than I am. Here's a question from Charles. What do we make of people who came to faith but later left the faith? Are they lost forever? Charles, this is one of the most difficult questions that any of us have to deal with. Um, we have all of us seen people who seemed genuinely sincere, genuinely sincere in their profession of faith. Some of them even produced fruit for a period of time. And then later just faded away, faded back into sin and now want nothing to do with God or they're, they're so steeped in sin that, that, that they, they just have no hope. And we wonder, well, did they lose their salvation? Well, the, 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 the answer to the question, Charles, is that they never had it. Jesus tells the parable, the parable of the sower. It's the foundation parable, by the way. If you don't understand that parable, um, you don't understand any of his parables. In this particular case, Jesus said, if you don't understand this to his disciples, how we understand anything? And this sowing the seed, the seed is the word of God. Our job as Christians is to scatter the seed. And then he tells in this parable that it's going to fall on four types of soil. Now, if we look and try to overanalyze the four types of soil, the only soil um, that we can say for sure, yeah, they were real believers. They heard the message and they responded to it and they believed it. Uh, is those that produced a, a, a crop of fruit. Um, but the other three types of soil representing human hearts, there were troubled hearts, there were shallow soil hearts where, where the word took hold very briefly, sprouted up, uh, but then it was burned up because the, the, the soil was shallow. Uh, we see that all the time. People make emotional decisions for Jesus, uh, but they're not real decisions for Christ. 1 John 2.19 says, and I think John had Judas in mind in particular when he wrote this. He said they went out from us because they were never really part of us. And there's a lot of people who come to Christ on, for all different reasons. Emotional reasons, they're in trouble, 
Uh, their life is overwhelming. And they receive the word gladly. They get really emotional about it. Uh, but, you know, they just don't last very long. Others return to the cares and the worries of this world and, and they sort of get squeezed out, quenching the spirit. But the truth is the real believer, given God's spirit as a deposit guaranteeing his or her inheritance, the real believer, Charles, is secure and will be received by Jesus because he who began a good work will be faithful to complete, complete it. So when you see somebody who's left the faith, it's not because they lost their salvation. The answer is it was never really a transaction of the heart. Now let me say one other thing. I'm running out of time, I think, for this half of the program. There are people who appear to leave the faith who are really believers, thus the parable of the wheat and tares, and God's Spirit doesn't leave them alone. And, and many, many times, Charles, they come back. And that demonstrates they really were believers in the beginning. And the problem is you can't tell the difference between the, 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 the non-believers who say they believe and the real believers who say they believe but, but aren't living as though they believe. That's why judgment is between them and Jesus. We don't have to worry about whether they left the faith or they lost their salvation. All we have to do is pray for them. Jesus knows those who are his, and he hasn't lost any of them. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We've got 30 minutes left on this Monday. Here's a question from our email inbox. Charles, but it's a different Charles. I know that because it's a different email address. Hi, Pastor Ron. After a little break, I began reading the Bible for the third time, starting with Matthew. God bless you for that, Charles. God bless you. Uh, I'm taking your advice, and I'm doing it much slower this time, and I find I actually missed a lot or forgot the first couple of times. Now, Charles, before I go on in your question, uh, I don't think it's that you missed a lot or forgot stuff. I think the Word is living and active, and I think as we grow in the Lord, we see more. That's why reading it repetitiously is so valuable to us. So God bless you for doing that. He says, I am reading the NLT, and by reading on BibleStudyTools.com, I can compare various translations, which brings me to my question. Your explanation of the wheat and tares to Cindy on Friday was really great. It brings my understanding to a whole other level. But the NLT and many other translations refer to wheat and weeds. While the wheat and weeds make perfect sense, the fact that tares resemble wheat really make the true meaning much clearer. So, should I continue reading the NLT, which I really like, or should I switch to the New King James? Um, Charles, I think as long as you have 
um, the, the Bible study tools that allow you to compare various translations, uh, my suggestion is to read the, 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 the translation that you are the most comfortable with. Uh, Paula has an NLT, and I find it frustrating uh, only because um, it seems to diminish the impact of some of the, the verses and some of the stories that have been so important to me. Um, and yet Paula loves it. And so, so I, I just think it's a comfort level that we need to, to deal with. Um, uh, I don't like the, the um, translation wheat and weeds because it misses the point of the parable altogether. The idea, as I said to Cindy on Friday, was the similarity in appearance, but the, the, the difference in, in reality uh, an enemy planted the, the tares among the wheat. Uh, and when they said, well, well, do you want us to go tear out these tares? And, and uh, in the parable, we're told, no, let, let the harvesting angels at the end of the age do that. And the, the meaning there being that if they start going out trying to find out tares, they're going to they're gonna tear out some real wheat in the process. Uh, the idea being that we really can't know from a human perspective, who's really saved and who's really not. That's why we're told to judge not, lest we be judged ourselves by God. We can look at behavior, and we can tell somebody who's living like a terror, we can tell them, look, you don't seem to live like a Christian. What makes you think you are? That's not judging them. That's just looking at their behavior and comparing it to that, that which is scriptural for a Christian, and we can say, I'm concerned about you. Now, one of the other things, and I don't think it matters a great deal, whether you read the New King James or the NLT, just for reference, my favorite translation is the 1984 NIV. Uh, I think it is by far the superior New Testament translation. Um, uh, they're hard to find now, Charles, but but that's, that's the, I, I think just, I don't even think it's even close. Um, so the New King James is great. Um, the, the NLT is fine, um, um, and, and there are others. But just remember, um, if you read in context, if you understand to whom Jesus was speaking, and especially as you're going through the Gospels, you're now starting, you said again, uh, in Matthew, as you're going through the Gospels, and especially in Matthew, Charles, you've got to understand the Jewishness of the ministry of Jesus. He came for the lost house of the sheep of Israel. He did not come for Gentiles. And I think we, we culturalize it, we make it way Gentile, and we jump to wrong conclusions. So, um, But look for the Jewishness of it. Can I suggest something, Charles, that will enrich your life immeasurably? There is a book by a man named Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M, it's called The Life and Times of the Messiah. And it is, um, I think it's indispensable for understanding. It's not easy reading, but it is indispensable for understanding the gospel accounts in the life of Jesus. So Alfred Edersheim, The Life and Times of the Messiah, it is an essential for anybody's library when you're reading through, studying, or preparing to teach uh, the, the Gospels of our Lord. I, I just, I cannot recommend it highly enough. So 
read the NLT, take Edersheim, um, keep looking at the other translations, and uh, you will be you'll be on really really safe ground. One word of caution: uh, I'm not a fan at all of the paraphrases. Um, the message um, translation is really not a translation at all. I, I just think it's it's wholly inadequate. Um, the Passion Translation is even worse, often heretical. Um, um, the Living Bible, um, sometimes it is so rich, and other times you just think, what? So uh, just turn pages. You're, you're going to be blessed abundantly so. Thank you very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This one is a question from Sarah. She says, of all God's attributes, which is the most important? Um, Sarah, you know, that's like looking at a, at, at a poker hand with four aces thing. Which ace is more important? Uh, all of the attributes of God make up who he is. And so they're all vitally important. Now, there's one attribute that all of the attributes spring from, and that attribute is holiness. We see in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's call. Um, he sees the throne, um, the cherubim, and the seraphim around the throne of God, and they're crying out, holy. These are the holy angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So holiness, not power, not I know everything, but his holiness. Without his holiness, there's no justice. Without his justice, uh, there, there's no fairness. So so. All of his attributes are important. His omniscience, that God is everywhere. Uh, he's all-knowing. His omnipresence, that he's everywhere. His omniscience, that he's all-knowing. And his omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. Those are really important things. But the angels weren't surrounding the throne crying, power, power, power. They were crying, holy, holy, holy. That's really important. So I would say holiness is the single attribute from which all of the others spring. And having said that, all of his attributes, Sarah, are equally important because they're all, for us, proof that God doesn't change, that God is perfect. So thank you very, very much. Here is a pro uh, question called in uh, anonymously uh, to the studio. I read a book that referenced the book of Enoch. I read over the outline of Enoch and wasn't sure about it. Should I read the book of Enoch or is it not worth paying attention to? Uh, anonymous, I, I think it's not worth paying attention to. Now, it's interesting. Um, I think if you understand that it isn't inspired by God, it's not perfect, uh, it, it has errors in it, uh, I think the, the discerning reader can get some historical background from it and benefit from it a little bit. But I, I just don't think it's something, when we've got 66 books that are written by God, we don't need to find the one that isn't. When you see the book of Enoch, or Jasher, um, referenced in our Bibles, uh, that's not commending the entirety of the book. It's just when they, they quote a particular thing, um, that that is just the veracity that that particular statement was correct and right. So... Um, I would not take the time to read it. It is not inspired by God, uh, depending on how curious you are. When I was 
growing in my faith. Uh, I was so curious. I wanted to read everything. Um, but uh, if you're if you're not that curious, I would say you're much better to spend your time on that which we know has been inspired by God. Good question. Thank you very very much. Here is a question from Sam. He says just tattoos with a question, and then do you have any? Um, Sam, I don't have any. Uh, honestly, I like tattoos. And I like colorful tattoos. And if I wasn't such a wimp because of the pain, I probably would have tattoos. The other thing that's stopping me from having any tattoos is I just don't think that a tattoo looks as vibrant on an old, tired body as it does somebody who's younger. Um, but, but there's no biblical prohibition at all against tattoos. So depending on your age, if you're if you're a minor, ask your parents. If you're living in your parents' home, ask your parents. But if everything is go, then feel free to get the tattoos that you want and just make sure that they glorify God in the process. But uh, nothing wrong at all with tattoos, and I actually like them. So thank you very, very much for, for the question. Our next question comes from Terry. He says, or she says, it could be her. Since Jews are God's chosen people, how can any Jew go to hell? Well, Terry, um, Judas went to hell, did he not? Jesus said he was the son of perdition, doomed to, to hell from before the foundations of the world. Uh, Jesus told the Jewish religious leaders it would be better for them had they never been born. Certainly they went to hell, those who, who, who lied about Jesus and had him put to death. So, Jews individually are not God's chosen people. Israel nationally are God's chosen people. Please learn to make that distinction, Terry. Israel nationally has been chosen by God. But secular Jews, Jews that have no interest in Jesus as the Messiah, they're going to go to hell for eternity because the same reason you would, because you reject the only way to get to heaven. We're all sinners. The standard of, of heaven for is perfection, and if we're not perfect, we can't go there. That's why Jesus made that deal with us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And because of that, um, Terry, we're perfect. Now, I don't look perfect, I don't feel perfect, but I'm not going to argue with Jesus since he gave me his perfection. And everybody, Jew, Gentile, no matter where they're from, no matter the background, the only way to heaven, and I say this unapologetically, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. He said it, it's our job to say it, and we need to tell people. So individual Jews still have one way to heaven, Israel nationally, God is going to, he always has a remnant. Before he comes back, God is going to deal with his nation, Israel, and fulfill every promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So, Terry, that's the answer for that question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. What is the rule for the offending spouse in a divorce? Can they remarry if they repent? and their spouse is already married again. 
this is such a hard thing for us to understand. We think in such a linear fashion. You know, when Paul says um, uh, that God hates divorce and, and, and if we're married, we should stay in the, in the, in the marriage um, um, and we shouldn't divorce, when the next sentence is, but if they do. So what, are we supposed to not do it? Well, yeah, we're not supposed to do it. But what if we do? Well, then there's there's a lot of grace. Now, you were the offending spouse in the divorce. Whatever it is that you did, um, whatever consequences you've been through, they're your fault. Um, and if we're supposed to stay unmarried, that's the best thing. However, when somebody repents, and especially when their spouse is already married again, then we also have to factor in grace. I know this drives legalists crazy. No, God says you must remain unmarried. But but we also have to factor in grace. And so when somebody really and truly repents, and they're purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God all over again, how can we deny them Marriage. Now, I would tell somebody I wouldn't remarry them if they hadn't repented. But I have remarried offending spouses when their spouse was already married. And I think that's the heart of God. Moses was able to provide certificates of divorce, the law of Moses. God says because of the hardness of men's hearts. Well, men's hearts are not any less hard now than they were those thousands of years ago. So I think this is something anonymous that you really need to go and talk to your pastor about. Let him ask you some questions. Examine your heart. Uh, Always um, um, reconciliation in a marriage is the best thing. But now that your spouse is already remarried, um, I don't think that's a life sentence of loneliness. I don't think God is vindictive and says, well, you know, you knew you shouldn't have done it, but you did. I think God's mercies are new every morning. And I think with a truly repentant heart, uh, I think even the offending spouse is entitled to live in a happy marriage again. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Eddie says, should a Christian attend a same-sex marriage ceremony. Eddie, um, a, a marriage ceremony is a celebration. And, and a same-sex marriage is something a Christian simply can't celebrate. So my answer is unequivocally no. And I've taken heat for saying this before. Um, but to celebrate a marriage that is an abomination, a perversion in the eyes of God, I don't know how Christian can do that. And I realize families are close. I realize that families are divided. I realize that we set ourselves up to be targets of derision uh, and and um, uh, and worse uh, when we take a stand for Christ. But how can we, without compromising our witness, celebrate somebody's marriage when that marriage is an offense to God? So no, a Christian should never attend a same-sex marriage ceremony. Not only that, they don't go one step further. Um, if you have friends in same-sex relationships who aren't married, 
um, I, I think those friendships need to be ended. N- not, not in anger, but you just tell them, look, I love you and I want you in heaven. And this kind of behavior, this kind of a relationship, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 5, this kind of behavior is going to condemn you to an eternity in hell. And I won't be a party to it. I'm going to pray for you. I love you and I'll always be here for you. But I'm not going to hang around with you and your same-sex lover. That's how we build a witness, a credible witness for Jesus Christ. So Eddie, no, do not go. Uh, don't let the family put enough pressure on you to to uh, sort of guilt trip you into going. Just don't go. 340-9585. Phones are quiet today. Hope this isn't a harbinger of February the whole month. Joseph says, how do we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit? Joseph, one word disobedience. When we are disobedient, we have grieved or quenched the Holy Spirit. The words are used in different translations uh, because we've cut ourselves off from the source of power. When we are disobedient, there's no power available to us to to satisfy um, the Lord. There's no power in our relationship. There's no way we can open the Bible and, and hear from Him. There's no way that we can pray and our prayers be heard. So when we willfully choose to walk away from obedience to God, imagine how brokenhearted the Holy Spirit of God really is. You know, Joseph, whenever I think about the Holy Spirit, and I know I've said this on the program before, so if you've heard it, please forgive me, but I think the, the Holy Spirit, practically speaking, has the, the most difficult job of, of the triune Godhead. Um, we have the power that raised Christ from the dead living in us, and we alone have the power to sort of unplug from that source of power. We control the choices we make. And imagine how difficult it is for the Holy Spirit when we say no. And sadly, we say no way, way, way too often, Joseph. So that's how we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. Marv asks, if Jesus had a physical body after the resurrection, how did he walk through walls when the doors were locked? Marv, this is what's exciting to me. Okay, I've got a physical body, and my body doesn't work like it used to work. Um, there are times arthritis in my hands. There are times I can't open a door using a doorknob. It gets stuck or it, it just, I don't have any strength in my fingers any longer to do that. And I'm waiting for my physical body that'll be just like Jesus' glorious physical resurrect, physically resurrected body um, because he didn't need doors. And because we know we're going to be like him, there's just... We can. He walked through those doors after a week, a week after his resurrection. Thomas and the others were hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews. And in an instant, Jesus said, Hi, peace is what he really said, Shalom. And we're going to be able to do that. We won't be contained by time and space. Imagine in the millennium, no matter where you're stationed, whatever your service location is going to be. If you want to zip over to Jerusalem and see Jesus, you can do it. 
I love that. We will no longer be constrained by the elements of this world. And I absolutely love that. You know, when I was a little kid, there was a show called Bewitched. And while I don't like ghosts or things like that, and this was a, a, a TV show about witches, um, man, I tried to make my nose be able to do what their nose did because they could just disappear and they'd be somewhere else in an instant. And I thought, wow, that'll be great. Well, that's exactly, without the nose twitching, that's exactly, exactly what we're going to be able to do when we are with Jesus in the millennial reign of Christ. Thanks, Marv. This will be our last question for today. Anonymously, how can I overcome the sin of pride? Uh, Anonymous, this ought to be the easiest one of all. Now, I know that pride is sort of the sin behind all of the other sins, but the way to overcome the sin of the pride, the sin of pride is to be honest about yourself. I was so proudful and so stubborn that God had to take me, just strip me bare. And it took him a long time. I told you, Paula prayed for me for 13 years. But when I got to that lowest place, I had to deal with what did I ever have to be proud about? And the answer is nothing. In my flesh is nothing good. In your flesh, Anonymous, is nothing good. So the way you overcome the sin of pride is to be honest about who you are. You know, we like to think of ourselves as being good people. We like to think of ourselves as committing to do good works. Truth of the matter is, apart from Jesus, there's nothing we can do. I mean, we can mess things up. I know I did. I still do, by the way, if I take a few steps away from Jesus. But the reality is there's nothing about my previous life that's worth being proud of. Now I'm proud of my wife. I'm proud of my kids. But the truth is I messed them up. Only God putting me back together was able to put our family back together. So I just realized I have nothing to be proud of. You know when people, pastors get accused of things and I'm no exception to that rule. But one of the ways that the Lord taught me to deal with it, instead of getting hurt by it, that's also from pride. Uh, I, I remember crying out, Lord, why would anybody say that? I didn't do anything. You know my heart. And, and the Lord spoke to my heart so clearly. And he said, Ron, just be grateful they don't know the real truth about you. Because the real truth about you is much, much worse than anything that they said about you. And I'll tell you, that is a way of humbling you. I mean, that strips you to the bone. And then you just realize, I have nothing to be proud about except Christ in me, the hope of glory. Hey, thank you for the questions. We'd love more phone calls tomorrow. This is The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then.